Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good day. I'm John McCaskill, your host, and thanks for tuning in to the Veterans Path Podcast. This podcast is just a piece of what we do. Veterans Path is actually a nonprofit working to introduce veterans and active service members to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can rediscover a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support of Veterans Path, increase attendance at our retreats so we're able to help more veterans, and finally, to reduce the stigma around mindfulness and meditation and seeking mental health support. Listeners and viewers, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a review or a like and share the show with anyone and everyone you think could benefit from our message. Also, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. All right, today my guest is Marine Corps Colonel Randy Hoffman. Randy is a Marine infantry officer with more than 35 years of active service. He has served from private to colonel in various infantry, reconnaissance, and special operations units and held several leadership and command positions throughout his career. He is a graduate of Indiana University, the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, and School of Advanced Warfighting, and the U.S. Army's Advanced Strategic Leaders Studies Program. He holds three master's degrees, all focused on warfighting, operational, and strategic planning. In 1988, Randy participated in combat against the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Navy in Operation Praying Mantis, and from 2003 to 2005, he served in combat as a senior military combat advisor in both Operations Enduring and Iraqi Freedom. His operational experience includes tours in the Persian Gulf, Liberia, Central America, the Republic of the Congo, Sierra Leone, and several Middle Eastern and Central and East Asian countries. Randy is a U.S. Navy combatant diver and a halo jump master. He currently serves as the commanding officer and professor of naval science at both Florida A&M and Florida State University. There you go. There's the Florida A&M that we were discussing before, Randy. We're going to find out a lot more about Randy, his work in the Marine Corps, and everything else since then. And that's all here in today's episode of the Veterans Path Podcast. All right, welcome back. As mentioned in the intro, my guest today is Marine Corps Colonel Randy Hoffman. Welcome to the show, Randy. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you uh, here with uh, with me today. Uh, you know, normally we kick these off with a little bit of small talk, just catching up on how things are going with you. Um, and I know that this particular time, uh, it sounds like some things are, are kind of uh, up, <laughs> kind of upended in your life. But uh, yeah, outside of that, you don't need to get into any personal details. Outside of that, how are things going for you? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, 
uh, as we mentioned before the start of the show, my, my dad passed away. So I'm back here in Indiana trying to clean up uh, some of his issues and take care of my mom. And, you know, every day I wake up and see the sun come up, it's a good day. So I just kind of stay focused on what I got to get done each day. So your family, are they still down in Florida right now then? Yeah, they are. Uh, my wife, Dawn, and my three kids are down in Tallahassee. My two oldest kids are finishing up college. Um, pretty much like most of, you know, college kids in America with this COVID-19 thing going. Yeah. So they're, they're in the house. They're doing online uh, finals. And then my youngest, Emma, uh, she's finishing her freshman year online. So they're all together in Tallahassee. They came up here to Indiana with me. But once I kind of assessed the situation, you know, I told them, I said, hey, you need to get back and, and uh, kind of huddled, huddled together down in Tallahassee because it was kind of rough up here. Yeah. Did you tr- actually travel up there since this whole COVID-19 isolation and uh, social distancing has been a part of our lives? Yeah. Yeah. So we came up here right when that was taken off. And in fact, uh, I'm not sure if that's actually what my dad may have died. He may have been one of the first ones to die from that because. Really? Yeah. He had a lot of the symptoms. He was already in the hospital at a VA hospital up in Indianapolis. Wow. And, uh, he, uh, he, he passed away on 13 March and uh, my, my mother's a stroke victim. So she uh, was pretty much in this old farmhouse and, and it wasn't really a good, healthy place for her to be. So I had to get her moved out with the help of my sister. Uh, we got her in a nursing home and now I'm cleaning up the farm and trying to get all my dad's assets taken care of. Jeez. Yeah. You, you've got your hands full. And again, sorry to, to hear about uh, everything that's, that's happened uh, for you and your family. Hey, I appreciate that. No worries. Yeah. We're good. We're good. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, uh, for, for my listeners, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I learned about Randy after uh, you were featured in an amazing article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, The Bravest Thing Colonel Randy Hoffman Ever Did Was to Stop Fighting, which incidentally, I was actually reading in, in the train station in Philly after attending the last Army-Navy game, go Navy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, after reading that article, I, I figured I, I got to f- find you. And I, I actually put out a, a blast on LinkedIn trying to find who may know you. And I actually ended up getting a couple of people that, that connected us. So I'm, I'm thankful to them. And then I'm thankful to you for, for being on the show and your willingness to share what it is we're going to discuss today that was obviously covered in that article. And if you do get a chance, uh, the listeners, if you get a chance to read that article, it's phenomenal. Uh, really gives a, a great backdrop for who Randy is and, and his, uh, his heart for the Corps and his, his, uh, his Marines and, and his family. So you, uh, you grew up in Danville, Indiana. What, uh, what made you join the Marine Corps? Uh, actually, born in California, my, my dad was a Marine, uh, along with his two brothers. And uh, so he got out of the Marine Corps uh, in the early 60s. And about 1974, he decided to move the family back to Indiana. So okay. I lived, lived in Indiana for 11 years. Um, and to answer your question, you know, pretty much I was surrounded by a lot of uh, uh, senior leaders, not just family, that were in the military. Uh, obviously, my dad, my Uncle Gary, uh, and my Uncle Terry, who was killed in Vietnam. I, I didn't have any recollection of him. He died when I was two years old. He was a crew chief 
uh, with a Marine Corps squadron, uh, HMM-262. So growing up with that kind of affiliation and listening to stories from my dad and, and his brother, um, I knew it was something that, that I was uh, always considering, and it wasn't until you know, pretty much in high school. Uh, I wasn't the greatest of students back then, and, and uh, growing up in a small town in Indiana, I kind of wanted to uh, get out and see the world and test myself and, you know, be something, be, be part of something bigger uh, than me. Uh, and that kind of collectively, that led me to the Marine Corps, kind of the family history and then just wanting to be a better me. You know? Got it. And you mentioned your Uncle Terry there. If I remember correctly, in the article, it, uh, it mentions him and he was uh, uh, MIA, correct? That's right. Yeah. So, Really, really neat guy. Uh, I wish, you know, I would have had a chance to know him as an adult. Uh, he was Mr. Football of Indiana. Uh, back then, they didn't call it that, but he was a fullback uh, for Danville High School, the high school that I went to. Uh, undefeated season, averaged over 12 yards per carry, so like an instant first down every time he touched the football. Nice. And uh, he had a, uh, an opportunity to play at Indiana State. He wanted to be a high school coach, and he was going to use football as that venue. But, uh, you know, he got into college, and his freshman year, he just didn't feel right with Vietnam going on, so he decided to enlist. So he was pretty well known in the county. And, and yes, so he was shot down on August 19, 1968. Uh, I was two years old. Uh, he was missing in action for uh, 26 years, I believe, total. They found his remains sometime in the late 80s or early 90s. And then when they uh, established a relation, when I say they, the Vietnamese government established, reestablished a relationship with the United States, uh, I believe under President Clinton, he was one of the first seven bodies to be repatriated to the United States. Wow. So, so they found him when I was a sergeant. And I was kind of notified at that, you know, about it at the time. And then literally just a couple of weeks, three weeks after I was commissioned, my first official uh, travel orders for a second lieutenant was to meet his body at Travis Air Force Base, escort him back to Indiana, and then be his burial officer and present the flag to my grandmother. While she wow. Was yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty amazing. I mean... And just the the symbolism and the uh, I don't know the, I don't even know I, I'm at a loss for words uh, for what that must have been like for your grandmother having you present that flag to uh, to her. That well, it's kind of pretty powerful. Kind of full circle, you know. I didn't think it would really be an emotional event for me, but surprisingly, it was. Uh, and it's probably the best gift I ever gave my grandparents. When I say I gave it to them, I mean, it was the U.S. government that found right. it. But being able to be the one to honor my uncle and his service. Uh, and I had a lot of, lot of Marine friends that kind of came around us and helped out with the funeral. So it was special to them. Uh, obviously, they're no longer living. So uh, I was glad to see them pass, knowing that their son was buried back in the U.S. and just south of the farm that he grew up on. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Um, as far as you now, you're in the Marine Corps. At what point did you decide that you wanted to go into force recon and, and what inspired that? Yeah. So I didn't know a lot about special forces. Uh, I just assumed all Marines did the same thing. I was pretty naive. Um, it wasn't until I talked to a recruiter 
that he uh, he explained that uh, in order to be in uh, in reconnaissance, you had to come in as an infantry marine, and uh, stupidly. Uh, I, I didn't understand an MOS. I didn't know what a military occupational specialty was. So he talked me into coming in open contract, which at that time, man, I could have been a cook. I could have been anything. And yeah, that's pretty uh, I risky. Got, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty risky. You know, so I just figured all Marines carried rifles and, you know, they all did the same thing. And uh, I got to boot camp and uh, I had some really, really good leaders, just phenomenal leaders, uh, one of which uh, was my senior drill instructor, a guy by the name of Eric Garcia, just the epitome of a Marine drill instructor. And I'm, I stay in touch with him to this day. And uh, he, he basically asked me at one point in boot camp, um, and I was, I was what they call a company honor man. So in boot camp, you have different leadership positions. And right. some of the advice my dad gave me when I went was just, hey, do everything they tell you to do. Do it as fast as you can do it. Don't shy away from leadership. A lot of guys kind of did that in boot camp, you know, and said, you're going to the Marine Corps to be a leader. Don't shy away from it. So at any point in boot camp, I, I was looking for, you know, little leadership type things. And anyways, uh, senior drill instructor Garcia asked me what my MOS was that I came in on. And when he found out that I didn't know what an MOS was, he called me a dumbass. <laughs> and he said, you realize that you're going to have to graduate as high as you can, because if you graduate number one out of boot camp at that time, and I, it's still today, I think, in San Diego, if you graduate number one out of 550-something recruits, you get to pick your MOS. So that was kind of my, my motive to be like, oh, crap, you know, I want to I heard about these infantry guys. I heard about recon and singing these cadences. That's what I want to be. A couple of the drill instructors and in other platoons were uh, in recon, battalion recon. So I had an opportunity to hear them speak to recruits. So that was my goal. And uh, fortunately, I was able to graduate number one, uh, you know, just a, a skinny young kid. You know, at the time, I, I hell, I was still five foot eight, I think. And, probably 145 pounds soaking wet. But uh, I just had a lot of good leaders and they pushed me. So that's kind of what started me on that path. And then, uh, you know, the rest is history. I, I left and kind of went that route and eventually ended up in second force recon. So when, at what point did you get your commission? Uh, where, where were you in, uh, in your career and where were you physically? Right, right. So in 1989, uh, I made the decision at last minute decision to, to leave the Marine Corps and become an officer. Uh, basically because two of my senior team leaders, uh, both sergeants, a guy by the name of Bruce Van Arsdale, great guy, and a George Chapanis, and another one actually, Chris Arman. These three guys were kind of my role models in Force Recon. And uh, they were the epitome of a recon Marine, just complete professionals, great leaders. And the three of them collectively uh, pretty much set me down and said, listen, if you want to do this for a long time and you want to become an officer, you need to get out while you're young enough to do it and not wait too late like they had. And I appreciated that advice. So I decided to get out in 89. My, my plan was to join the Marine Corps Reserves and, and finish my college. I had a little bit of college I, I'd been doing uh, part time. So I got out in 89, came back. Unfortunately, school had already started. I'd missed the window for that uh, fall semester. So I had to pretty much work. 
I worked several jobs and I was also a platoon sergeant in the reserves out, out of Danville, Illinois at that time, not Danville, Indiana. Wow. And that was uh, Kilo Company, 3rd Battalion, 24th Marines. Uh, the one that I actually went back to later as an inspector instructor, uh, as a major, and it, it had since moved to Terre Haute, Indiana at that time. So I got out, uh, I thought I wanted to fly in the Marine Corps. I went to a small, uh, small college in Southern Indiana in the meantime called Vincennes University. Uh, I got my private pilot's license. Uh, I was planning on transferring to Purdue and to pursue a Naval aviation uh, degree. Or, or pursuit and a desert storm broke out and uh, I got recalled and I did not get sent back to uh, Saudi Arabia or Kuwait because the war was over so quick. But the Marine Corps decided to keep me on active duty for a while. Uh, so that kind of took another chunk of time out. So ultimately- This is still, still while you're an enlisted guy, you have yeah, not received your commission yet. That's right. So ultimately, wow. ultimately I finally get back to school. Um, I finished out of uh, Indiana University, out of Indianapolis, a satellite campus. And uh, on May 15th of 94 is when I finally had enough collective credits. I had transferred at that time to a history degree because I lost my flight uh, contract due to my age because of getting recalled and right. I was already on an age waiver. Uh, but I love flying, I, I still fly uh, any chance I get. I, it's costly, so I don't do a lot right now. Uh, but I, I was commissioned in 94. So that's kind of why there's a little, little burble there of active duty reserves and then back on active duty again. Yeah. That's a colorful path. Uh, and, oh, yeah. and you, may, you may have noticed me, uh, uh, kind of giggle to myself when you mentioned, uh, get out of the Marine Corps and become an officer. <laughs> Cause at, at first I thought you were meaning <laughs> like tongue in cheek that officers are not <laughs> officers are not true Marines. <laughs> So I was kind of laughing. So for the for the viewers who see this, when they see me laugh when he says that, that's why I was doing that. So anyway, um, so where were you uh, on September 11th, 2001 then? Yeah, so uh, I was actually uh, in, this, in a school at that time. It was called Amphibious Warfare School. I'm sorry. It, yeah, Amphibious Warfare School, uh, AWS. And it was a... Uh, it's called Expeditionary Warfare School now, so sometimes I, I get I confuse sure. people. But it's a, it's a captain's level school that all Marine officers normally go to. You can take it by correspondence, or you can go, um, you know, where you're actually attending for that year. Uh, I just finished a job where I was actually testing weapons and equipment uh, for the reconnaissance community uh, at Marine Corps Systems Command. Uh, believe it or not, I was a test parachutist. As weird as that sounds. Uh, <laughs> among other things that we tested, but I did that for three years. And then on the tail end of that, I went to AWS, which was right there in Quantico where I, I was already stationed. And uh, I was in the middle of what, uh, not the middle, but the beginning. So the school starts in, uh, let's see, we start in July, August, September. So I was three months into it when 9-11 occurred. And that was, that was pretty powerful, pretty powerful sure. to be there and watch that go down. Yeah, I mean, I think we all, at least our generation, all remember exactly where we were uh, oh, yeah. on September 11th, that Tuesday morning. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I was in the uh, the Bud's Chow Hall, uh, and I remember specifically, you know, being on the West Coast. We were waking up a little bit later than everyone, and when we woke up, 
everything was uh, already going down and uh, yeah. it still brings chills to my mind thinking about, you know, the impact of, uh, no pun intended there, obviously, um, yeah. the, the impact of, okay, wow, things just got real because I was in the training, you know, Bud's is training yeah. and, uh, and yeah. then I realized, wow, okay, well, the, the SEALs are going to go out and do some serious work here in the coming years. Little did I know that we'd still be involved in, in that work 19 years later. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, as, yeah, it's pretty wild. As as far as uh, in the uh, in the article, it mentions uh, them coming into I think it was the classroom and saying, you know, who who speaks Arabic or Pashtun or uh, Dari or, or anything, and you mm-hmm. you had some type of training in Arabic. Um, how did that come into play in getting you forward deployed? Sure. So ironically, if you're a history major at Indiana University, uh, at least when I went through, you had to at least have a year and a half to two years thereabouts of a language. And because I was going to OCS in the summers, two summers, I had to do, you know, one, one six weeks, another six weeks between my junior and senior year. I missed the window for my languages. And by the time I finally got back to uh, Indiana University, they're like, hey, you got to knock your language out. And all the, all the other languages were taken. So that's all I ended up taking Arabic. Wow. Because uh, I wanted to take like French or German. And like, I, the, like the only two languages left were like Swahili and Arabic. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> so I took Arabic. I actually enjoyed it. I had a really, really good professor. I don't, I don't know if he's still alive anymore, but just a super neat guy. He was Egyptian. His name was Mohi Salah, and he was actually a sniper in the Six-Day War uh, against the Israelis, and he oh. really really liked military guys, and it was a small class because I was at a satellite campus, and he really invested in me, taught me how to read and write it. Uh, frankly, I could read and write it better than I could speak it. My word comprehension wasn't that great. Uh, but after I graduated in 94, I really never used the language at all, and I'd always kind of regretted not sticking with it. So, you know, like a lot of schools and units and, and uh, different, you know, uh, places around the Marine Corps and the Navy, anybody that had any type of language skill, obviously, right after 9-11, they were, they were looking for guys. And I just, you know, I didn't really feel like I was coherent and, and capable of using that language. A lot of people ask too, you know, why, why did they send you to Afghanistan if you spoke Arabic? But what right. the article doesn't tell you is everybody on the battlefield were primarily Arab speakers at that time. Al-Qaeda was in much larger numbers. Uh, so it wasn't primarily just the Taliban that we were fighting. It was, you know, Arabs from every Arab country. Sure. And then the second to that is Pashtu is very similar to Arabic in the script. There, I want to say there's like maybe 12 extra characters in Pashtu. So if you can read and enunciate, pronounce Arabic, you can look at Pashtu script and you can pretty much pronounce a Pashtu word even though you don't know what it means. Wow. Which, which really, really served me well because I had a lot of Pashtuns who were illiterate and their language couldn't read and write. And with a dry erase board, I could teach classes to them by them telling me the name and then I could write it in Pashtun script. So it was this weird kind of way to get basic conversation skills to a level to where it helped them and I could understand the words that were used in Pashtun. So my Pashtun got kind of good, not really good. 
and my Arabic continued to atrophy while I was there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, between when you had it in, uh, in school and when you actually got deployed supposedly to use it, did yeah. you get any type of refresher training or were you just leaning heavily on, on what you'd learned years ago? Yeah, so I, I refreshed myself a little bit, reacquainted myself with basic phrases. Um, when I got into Afghanistan, there were, you know, a lot of the goods that flow into the country come from Arabic-speaking countries, so you could read on them uh, what they were saying. And, yeah. and then, like I mentioned before, I could kind of use it uh, with Pashtu. Like I could read a license plate and tell you if it was from Kabul or Kabul or Jalalabad just by the script on the plate. Um, but so I used it, uh, and then I kind of uh, halfway through that tour, uh, when I came back for a short break, I was able to take a refresher course where I, I could get online also while I was forward deployed. But uh, I was very infrequently around computers when I was deployed, so that didn't help. Sure, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were deployed um, and you were basically uh, blending in with the locals, living amongst them, uh, I think in the in the article it even talks about uh, rather than traveling the roads, you had checkpoints that you hiked between or something to that effect. Um, mm -hmm. What were some of the missions and how did you go about blending in with the locals? Yeah, so um, the primary mission for me at this time, uh, Afghanistan was an eclectic mix of all kinds of folks, you know, a lot of, a lot of, special forces guys, Green Berets, which really that's kind of the bread and butter mission is sure. foreign internal defense. Uh, but there was also kind of a remnants left over of the old uh, Soviet led uh, Afghan National Army, which the Soviets had stood up. So you'd see a lot of kind of militias with those old uniforms on. And then obviously you had not necessarily a lot of Mujahideen survivors, uh, because the life expectancy over there for any adult is so low, but a lot of the younger brothers that supported their older brothers that did fight against the Russians. So this very eclectic mix, and then uh, had a lot of refugees, you know, from Pakistan and various places bleeding into that. And then you had former warlords, and then you had all the different fighting factions that were pretty much drawn along ethnic lines that still exist today in Afghanistan. Um, and, and what I realized when I got over there was it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. There was a lot of different, um, different languages, different people. And so my original mission going in there was just try to make sense of what's out there. Uh, really, you know, just, you know, reconnaissance Marines main job is to observe and report, you know, and that's officer or enlisted. Right. And uh, so I think that's one reason why that was kind of my piece of the group of men that I was with and, and, uh, and I, you know, I wrote a lot of reports back kind of explaining and detailing for my own placement, my own perspective in those provinces that I was in, what I thought was going on. Uh, and I didn't realize at the time, uh, but that was pretty valuable because it, it enabled at least on the special operations side for them to paint a picture on what's doable and what's not doable, at least from my little piece of the pie. Right. I got, and I got a lot of it wrong. I mean, I made a lot of wrong assumptions early on and, and unfortunately, you know, had to kind of learn from those. But uh, so first we just figure out what's going on. And then once we figured out what was going on about three months into that, it was okay. We believe 
there's kind of this vacuum created now that the Taliban has left. The Taliban, I tell people all the time, are, are all Taliban are Pashtun. Okay, very few Taliban are not Pashtun. They might have one or two uh, other ethnicities, but 99.9% .9 of the Taliban are Pashtun, but not all Pashtun are Taliban. Yep. And that's something that the country, I don't think, really understood. So my job was to find those Pashtuns that did not allied themselves with the Taliban uh, and, you know, try to compel them uh, through talking with them and explaining to them why we were there, America, uh, not to join the Taliban. And then those that were with the Taliban to try to get them to, you know, not support them or sit on the fence, you know, to dissuade people from joining the Taliban. And if you were with the Taliban, say, hey, um, we understand, you know, that that was kind of the, the prominent Pashtun political party here. And, and you know, um, it, it gets kind of gets kind of muddy because a lot of people have a, a, a black and white image of the Taliban. And it's just, you know, tal, tal, the word Taliban means religious student. That's essentially what it means. A Talib is a teacher Got it. Uh, in, in Arab, Arabic. And yeah, so, so there's no, it's no real ethnicity necessarily. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's, it's like me walking into, you know, here in Ladoga, Indiana and going into Methodist church and say, I'm here to get all your Sunday school teachers. You know, that's right. the same as going into a village saying, Hey, we're here for the Taliban. Right. And I, I didn't understand that until like month four, you know, that when you go into places, you know, you've got to, you've got to see things from somebody else's placement sure. in perspective. So that was kind of the mission early on. And then once, you know, we got those guys, uh, these really, really good hearted, tough, um, you know, essentially just tribesmen. Uh, and, and you kind of understood where they were coming from. And, you know, John, this is what I would say. I tell my students this today. Probably the best thing I learned from that experience is understanding my placement and how it shapes my schematic of the world. And uh, the analogy that I give to people are, you know, you can think of almost a traffic accident. There's two or three people on three different viewpoints, you know, somebody on the top of the building, somebody at an intersection and somebody across the street. And they all watch this accident occur. Right. But maybe one person sees the cat that runs out in front of the car that causes it to swerve and kill a little girl. Right. One guy in the other corner just sees the little girl killed and the guy on the top of the building saw both of it. And they're all right from their placement. They're all right. What they see. Sure. But it's not until you understand somebody else's placement that you can kind of build a picture. And so that's what I did early on on the borders, try to get out of my skin, listen to them on how they viewed us coming in. And, you know, and it made a lot of sense to me. You know, some of the things they were telling me were, were absolutely true. And, you know, you don't really think about it coming in there if you have just a pure U.S. perspective placement. Right. You know. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Uh, so yeah, thank you, thank you for that because I, I think that will resonate with a lot of our, our veterans, um, but hopefully also with uh, our non-veteran listeners, they can kind of gain some perspective on on how complicated the the situations are over there in in Afghanistan. It's, I mean, it's a completely different um, situation to to Iraq. I mean the Iraq's very complicated in its own right, uh, but the, the just the tribal warfare, the tribal living, you, just from one village to the next, 
the culture can be completely different and perspective with that culture changes. Um, you mentioned coming back briefly uh, during, during one of your appointments. And again, uh, I'm going to continue to reference the Wall Street Journal because that's really my only point of reference. Sure. Um, it, it mentions um, how difficult some of that time coming back was and that life was actually simpler at war. Um, can you speak to how you mean that life was actually simpler at war? Sure. So uh, there's times that uh, it, it, it may not it may not seem like it, but there's times that uh, you see that share screen, John. I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you're coming Looking out good. of that, <laughs> you're coming out of that environment you know, and you're living with people for two and a half years. And you know this, you know, you're living with people yeah. uh, that are completely culturally different from you. What I started to notice was there were some things that I actually envied them that they had. And, you know, mainly it was just the value of conversation, like what you and I are doing right now, you know, looking each other in the eye, seeing facial expressions, building, building implicit communication. They also didn't have a lot of distractors, you know, when you're at 10, 11,000 feet up in the mountains, you know, survival for them seemed normal, but to an, to an outsider, to us, you know, growing up here in the U.S., it would seem harsh. But despite that, they really thrived in it. And they, they valued, uh, I think, in a lot of ways, their family, family values and their, their connectedness to each other, their word. Uh, their sense of honor, their work ethic, their survival instincts for the group uh, were all things that for the first time in, in my life, uh, I was completely surrounded by that for two and a half years. And I started to really kind of admire it. Now, obviously, there's things in their culture, like any culture that might repel somebody. You look at it and be like, that's just weird. You know, but again, it's placement and schema. And so when I came back out of that from having that kind of cohesiveness and it just really kind of recalibrated um, what I felt was a simpler life. You know, I got back to the States and everything seemed a lot more complex to me and almost needlessly so, but a lot more complexity was thrown on me that I just didn't have for the two and a half years. And most people think that's nuts, you know, because you were fighting in a war over there and, you know, you're dealing with life and death every day. But I think there's a lot of noise that we experience back here that we don't even see through because we're never removed from it and plopped down in the middle of a culture that just doesn't have a lot of that noise. Right. So I think that's where I really struggled. You know, I would come back and I, I longed for those same types of conversations. But e even to some of my own friends in the Marine Corps, it was like they didn't have time to have that conversation with you. We're in, we're in you know, I, I want to say Afghanistan because that's kind of a misnomer when you group everybody as Afghans. But in Pashtunistan, which is essentially what that is, you know, it's it's just different. So right. coming, coming in and out of that, uh, even though it wasn't that frequently during those two, two and a half years, but when I finally got back, I kind of missed that. And it was, it was, I just thought things were easier over there. I guess that's a, a long way to say, I just felt like it was easier to, to function in that environment. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Totally. I mean, and, and I, I, I've lived in it, I've seen it and I completely agree yeah. in that, you know, that, that the noise that we live in now back here stateside, it, it does completely kind of wash out the, the signal. Um, so you, well, you know, th think about this. Tell me if this isn't true. Are you in better shape and eat healthier when you're deployed or when you're home? Oh, deployed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because you absolutely. just get rid you get rid of that noise, you know, and you're right. focused on that. Yeah. And it's that's Literally. it. Yeah. 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 So you talked about Afghanistan, Pashtunistan. Um, again in the article, it mentions your family calling uh, your kind of your home life Hoffmanistan. <laughs> Um, can you can you speak to that and uh, and what made the family say that? Yeah, well, it's, it started as a joke and then kind of turned into a sick joke. But yeah, uh, so my kids uh, in the family chat title on our phones is Hoffmanistan, <laughs> and then there's like the little icon symbol of the fist, the kung fu fist. <laughs> <there. laughs> but uh, uh, I came good. home and in my um, you know one thing the story couldn't talk to uh, was what my wife, I, it talked about what my wife was going through, but the article is so large, they just couldn't put everything in there. Cause there's a yeah. lot of other crazy stuff that happened that, uh, that I won't belabor your listeners with to, to recount, recount it. But uh, one of which is my, my wife lost her, her dad, her mother and her brother on five and a half years during that time. So my wife had to leave. This is how I'm answering the Hoffmanistan. My wife had to leave to go back to Indiana because her mother, uh, Sue, was dying from brain cancer and I was responsible for the kids. Uh, so, you know, I just left several years before, you know, working with all these posturing tribesmen in the thousands, you know, getting them from point A to point B and not me guiding them, just working with them. Right. And I got back and I missed the bus for my youngest daughter, you know. And just, I couldn't get her on the bus on time to make it to school for school pictures. And my wife had made the comment. She's like, you know, you can handle Afghanistan, but you can't run Hoffmanistan. So that's kind of how it started. Yeah. And uh, the kids thought it was funny, but you know, it kind of had a, it, you know, there's kind of oh, a yeah. negative side to it because they, they could obviously see I had changed and I was struggling with stuff. And, and so uh, they don't look at it, you know, they don't use the term, uh, disparagingly, you know, we all kind of joke about it, you know, but it, it's kind of that dark period that I was going through and, and they were going through it with me and they, they knew what, you know, all of that had done to me. And so, uh, but we still use it. It's our call sign. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that, you know, it started as a joke, kind of went dark there for a while. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure it cut deep when, when Don said things like that about you're not being able to handle Hoffmanistan, but but now that it's uh, come full circle back to yeah. seemingly a lighthearted joke. Yeah. Um, so you come back from, from war uh, and then you're actually tasked to manage the reservist in Indiana. Um, and I, uh, I want to touch on what potentially may be a sensitive subject and, you know, if you're not comfortable discussing it, please let me know. But um, Corporal Eric, and I'm going to mispronounce his last name. Is it Lucan? It's Leakin. Leakin. Mm -hmm. So Corporal Eric Leakin, uh, can you speak to, it seems like he was just interwoven into your life several yeah. times. 
Yeah. Um, can you speak to who he was in your life and then how that played uh, a part in your challenges, but then again, in your actually taking a step to seek help? Yeah, sure. So uh, I thought I was going to retire. I was close to 20 years at that time. I was a major because uh, I had the prior enlisted years. So I, I was a little bit older, uh, pretty burnt out from the war. Uh, my wife really, really wanted to retire in Indiana. Actually, the farmhouse that I'm in right now is the one that we bought. Wow. Uh, and uh, so we, we kind of reconnoitered this area of the state. Uh, I asked the Marine Corps, uh, I said, hey, I'd like to teach at Purdue. They didn't have an opening at that time for ROTC for me to teach. Uh, so they said, next best thing is we've got this infantry reserve unit. Uh, that's in Terre Haute, Indiana, which was about an hour and a half from where my wife and I grew up in Indiana. Wow. I said, that's great. I said, I'll take that. So I came back with a pure mindset of I'm going to retire as a major, get another job, live the good life, start a, a, you know, kind of a small farm here. Indiana standards, this wouldn't be considered a farm uh, because it's not enough acreage. But, you know, for me, it was, you know, it was close to 20 acres and that's a lot. Yeah. So we, we decided to do that. We came back, we bought a 200 year old farmhouse, uh, chicken coop, barn, horse paddock, got a river behind it, beautiful, beautiful piece of land. And uh, I start training the reservist. And uh, one of the duties as an inspector instructor, that's the job title, the billet title, uh, is you know basically you're training reservists and getting them ready uh, in case they're called up. And it's kind of a difficult job because you never have enough time. You got one week in a month and that, you know, obviously not enough time to, to train to a standard that, that is comparable to an active duty unit. Uh, well, as soon as I got back, uh, you know, my commanding officer, another active duty Marine, uh, we're geographically separated. So he's in St. Louis, Missouri. And he said, hey, we're going to send your company into Iraq. So I knew I had to get these guys ready. And I only had about a half year to do that. Uh, so some of my Marines that I was training that lived around me in the various counties, adjacent counties, uh, I sent into Fallujah in 2006. Mm. As you know, six and seven were the highest death tolls since right. Vietnam for the Marine Corps. And then in addition to that, I had a geographical area that spanned northeastern Kentucky, south, uh, southeastern to, to the middle of Indiana and then over to central Illinois and down kind of this big square and any Marine uh, that got killed in the war just died, you know, drunk driving accident, something like that. Didn't matter. My, my additional duty was to do death notifications. And I knew that going into the job. Right. Uh, but what I didn't know at that time was, you know, the spike in casualties that we were going to incur in a Ramadi and Fallujah, and then in um, that I was going to send, you know, 80 plus uh, reserve Marines with limited training, frankly, uh, the best we could get them, but just limited in, sure. in, into one of the biggest battles, you know, in, in Marine Corps times. Um, so Leakin was not from that unit. Uh, he was a Marine that was with third battalion, third Marines. He comes from a, a county in southern Indiana, beautiful place. Uh, a lot of German immigrants settled there. That's why his last name is kind of hard to pronounce, but it's Eric Leakin. 
and uh, I made the same mistake too. I thought it was Lucan when I saw it. Yeah. And, and he was one of my first death notifications. So I had to go down to Dubois County where he was from real small community down there and, and conduct that death notification with my first sergeant. And that was one of several. The article says nine, but in reality, I probably did close to 20. And, and wow. the, way I, the way I explain that is when you tell a family that somebody's dead, uh, they normally live in the same town because they're reservists. And the family doesn't want to have to tell a brother, sister, or a mom, or an aunt, or an uncle. So you spend the remainder of the day telling other relatives. And mm. telling one is not any different than you know telling a sister or telling somebody right. else. So right. not nine in all, but I can't tell you how many times I told somebody that their loved one was dead. What I didn't know about Eric Leakin is I'd actually met him. Uh, so he died in 06. I had met him in 04 and I didn't even know it. And I don't even know what the probability is of that occurring and didn't really even find that out until a few years ago when I was visiting his mother in Southern Indiana and she showed me pictures of him in Afghanistan. And one of the photographs that she had showed me, uh, he was a communicator. And uh, when I'd come out of the, the mountains in Jalalabad in the Spingar Mountains, I saw a column of Humvees and I saw the markings on there. I knew they were from uh, Hawaii because it was 3-3. Right. And he was, you know, I went to the Humvee that had all the antennas sticking out of it. And uh, later on when I put the time together and I talked to his commanding officer, who I also knew, and I talked to his mother, I realized that this was the young man that I had talked to to go find the battalion commander at the time. So I did, I, I did the death notification on a Marine that I had met in combat several years prior in Indianapolis. Wow. Yeah, yeah. that's, uh, I, I, uh, I was selected to command a, a NOSC, the Naval Operational Support Center uh, okay. for, the, for the Navy. Um, and then for some for some reasons I ended up not doing that, but that, you know, obviously the same thing. That was one of the, the duties and some of my uh, buddies who ended up having to do that. Um, you know, they said even, even being a seal and being in combat and even losing friends next to them on the battlefield, they said that the hardest thing they ever had to do was to make these death uh, uh, notifications. Yeah. to the next of kin. So, uh, I mean, that's, I, I, I would, would agree. I would agree with that. I, uh, at the time I, you know, foolishly, maybe even pridefully, um, uh, I looked at myself as being pretty strong, uh, emotionally and mentally. And, uh, the feeling that you get when you're walking up to knock on a door, uh, and tell a mother or, you know, I told a son one time cause nobody else was home and, Every one of these are different. You always remember them. They stick in your mind forever. Sure. But the feeling, the the uh, the feeling in your stomach, and the kind of that that anxious rush that you're getting right before you're going into combat is exactly the way you feel when you're coming up to the door because you know within seconds when mom opens the door that it's going to be complete chaos. Right. And you feel, you feel every one of them, you feel like you're watching a movie that you're not in. You're just watching it occur around you, you know, when you go yeah. to do that. Yeah, that must be surreal. Yeah. And, and I'm a people person. You know, I love people. Uh, I don't like to see people hurt. 
uh, especially, especially emotionally. So when you're the bearer of that news and then you're watching just this grief play out in front of you, I think personally, and I don't, I don't know if I could back this up with any fact, but I don't know if I would have struggled with PTS as much had I not left combat and gone right into that. And then I would add, had some personal uh, things in my own family going on that were very near death experiences. The combination of all of those, I think for me, looking back at it, if I was to do a hot wash of my whole life, I would say, yeah, probably a bad cocktail at that time of yeah. all those things occurring, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I don't mean to change subject, but you brought something up there, the, the near death experience in your family. And it mentions that in the article, the, the, the accident at the mini mart. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm actually sitting in the house just a hundred yards from where I watched that whole thing take place. Uh, but I've got to kind of preface it with this again, you know, the article's long, like 9,000 words. It's a long read. Yeah, it was, but it was excellent. And, and Mike Phillips did a great job with it, but there were things he just couldn't put in there. And, and frankly, even if he did, it's, it's almost hard to imagine it. So to, to, to tell the mini Mart thing, I've got to tell you this and I'll do it under 30 seconds. So right. my first, my first week back, one of my best sergeants I ever had in the Marine Corps, his wife and two sons were killed in a head-on collision. Mm. Uh, my first week back from Afghanistan, and uh, that floored me. So I had to go to Ohio and, uh. and, and handle his family and kind of console them. And it was tough because his son was born at Camp Lejeune Naval Hospital right alongside my son, my wife and his wife. The next week after that, I was doing a reserve drill. My gunnery sergeant was sleeping next to me, uh, my training Ops, uh, ops chief and the uh, Boone County Sheriff's Department called me on the phone and said, hey, do you have a Staff Sergeant uh, Larry Coon? I said, yeah, he's sleeping right next to me. He said, well, we're at his house. His wife just killed herself. and put the Oh, bed. geez. So I had to wake him up. He was really my first death notification and tell him that his wife had just you know, killed herself. Three hmm. of my staff had PTSD. Uh, one of them tried to take his life. And then the Minimart accident. So I was do I was do, working every week and I literally was averaging about two days off a month, uh, and all of that had already taken place, and I'm I'm still kind of grieving my friend. I'm trying to help my my gun my through his wife's death. We buried her back in Ohio, uh, and I came home on one of these rare occasions where I'm home on a weekend and my wife was picking my son up from soccer practice and. We live in a small town, Ladoga. There's no stoplight. There's one gas station. And uh, she left. I had, I want to say it was a 2005 or six, no, 2004 Yukon, I think. And uh, she left in it to pick him up. And she said, hey, on the way home, I'm going to grab a pizza. There's only two places to get pizza in this town. One's at the gas station and one's at a little pizza king here. And, and uh, she left and I was out in the yard and I, I'm not even 800 clicks from this gas station. I'm sorry, 800 yards. Yeah, from this 800 station. yards. Yeah. yeah. 800 yards from this gas station, less than a click. And I'm pushing my daughter on the swing and uh, I hear this massive explosion and I look over in the direction of the gas station and I see a mushroom cloud go up in the air. Literally just. A That's click. like the movies. Yeah. Perfect cylinder mushroom cloud. And I'm looking at it. 
And I thought, man, that is really odd. And, and for a while, my brain just starts tricking me, you know, like I'm not seeing that, you know, yeah. that looks like an ID, you know, and all of a sudden all the tornado sirens go off in town with tornado sirens are big in the Midwest. So they all start yeah. going off and my wife's not coming home and I'm waiting to get a call. Uh, cell phone technology during this time is just kind of up and running, you know, it's spotty. And I hear all of a sudden I hear all the first responder vehicles come in and I, I knew something was up and then she didn't come home and I'm not getting a call from her. And I'm like, okay, this isn't good. So I grab my daughter and I go get my infant daughter at the time, Emma, and I throw them in the car and I drive. And in the scene that I arrive on are all these policemen, sheriff's deputies and firemen with the drunk driver's car smashed into my black Yukon and it's in flames, pushed, up against, pushed up against the gas station with secondaries going off, you know? And in my mind, I'm, I'm wondering if she's in the Yukon and my son's in the Yukon burning alive or if they're inside the gas station, I don't know. And it's the fire's so hot, the fireman can't get to the Yukon. Well, around that time when I'm trying to get through and getting ready to like do McMap with the uh, sheriff's deputies because they won't let me in, my phone finally rings and she and some seven other people trapped inside the gas station broke down the back door and she was able to get out and get cell phone wow. me. And then so she and I linked up at the site of the accident. I mean, completely, uh, completely put me a hundred percent into hypervigilance that I, oh, I'm sure I did not come down off of for like a year and a half, you know, uh, un understandably. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I just got chills and my hands started sweating hearing that story. So, uh, I mean, I can only imagine what you were experiencing as, as the first person in the first person. Right. Yeah. You know, I've got, I've got a little girl and a little boy. Um, and obviously my wife as well. Um, I, I cannot imagine that. So I, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, well, luckily, you know, luckily you didn't lose them, but I'm sorry that you had to experience that and be tricked into that hypervigilance yeah. uh, through that, that well, catastrophe. Think, think of how security minded you are when you're with your team, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if you're like me uh, in most, most, operators are when you come back you take that team mentality with your family totally and you get completely security conscious especially coming out of combat because especially with little kids you're always watching them and because you're you're hyper vigilant on making sure nothing happens to what you value right you know and that's kind of where i was at you know and 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 that really i started doing really weird crap after that because it just put me in that mindset of i got to protect my family right yeah yeah and um, that uh, I'm sure is what, um, led to the note that Caroline wrote about you. Um, yeah. it, can, can you talk to that note for the listeners? Yeah, I'd actually forgotten about that. My son had to remind me about it, but, um, as, as the kids watched me kind of, you know, kind of, uh, go into this mode that I didn't really come out of for a long time the things I would do would scare them. You know, they didn't understand like if I was in the car and I was doing a route surveillance check on my, you know, the way we were driving or, you know, you know, stuff that you probably hear in the movies, but it's very true. You know, yeah. anything with conflict, uh, like if we would go to a restaurant 
and I would see somebody getting upset with the waiter, it would piss me off, you know, because you feel like you've got to solve any type of interpersonal yeah. conflict. Yeah. And they would see me amp up and get ready to, like if some guy was being rough with a waitress or mm -hmm. a customer out or, and I, you know, frankly, I'm still kind of that way today. I get, you know, not too long ago, I was at a barbecue place in Tallahassee and, and my wife and youngest daughter were in there with me and some guy just starts cussing out the waitress. And, you know, I, I find myself, I'm just like, man, I just want to grab that guy and throw him out of here, you know, because I think that's a natural thing anyway. Yeah. But then yeah. throw on top of it, the hypervigilance yeah. that you have. That's, that's right. Yeah. And, and so anything with conflict, I mean, even I couldn't handle watching TV shows, even if it was like, a, uh, I was talking to a guy about this yesterday, like a murder mystery. I just couldn't watch stuff like that. Anything that had conflict with people yelling and screaming or babies crying, I just, anything like that would kind of amp me up. Well, my daughter would see that and she would see how serious I would get and how focused and I think it scared her, you know, mm -hmm. and. And I think that's when she started writing that, like, cause it was making her and my son uneasy because they were young kids and, you know, nothing was really that severe, even now looking back in retrospect, but for me, I was so hypervigilant, it was spooking them. Sure. So she wrote this note, said, dad is scary. Um, she takes that note and she gives it to her brother and, and then you see it. Um, and how did that affect you? bum me out you know it's uh and I, you know i'm just gonna for your listeners i don't know if they've ever dealt with this or not but you know i'm really depressed during this time i'm in this real depressive state and uh could did not have any joy in my life and uh, which is you know that's that's a result of a whole bunch of stuff you know to the dumb grunt here it basically means my serotonin levels were low and i could not find happiness and stuff and and sadly i could not find happiness in my kids and uh, I can remember looking at them when they were younger, thinking, man, I, I can't even have a joy in my own children. And what's wrong with me if I can't have joy in my children? And I almost felt guilty for having joy in my kids because I had seen so many families lose their sons. And I almost felt guilty in a sense, you know, like in, in some weird way, I can't even really explain it. So I was trying to tell her, listen, you don't need to be uh, scared of dad, you know, and, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good, you know, but they just weren't seeing that. They were seeing me where I was at and kind of that dark, you know, cave. Uh, and that lasted for a while. And sadly, you know, it was during a lot of their younger years and, and they saw my temper and, and I was never abusive, you know, and, you know, spanking kids or anything like that. I mean, I'm probably the, the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the less disciplinarian for my wife, you know, cause I would come home and let them go wild pretty much. But, uh, to her chagrin, but I just, I, I felt really bad that she looked at me that way, but I kind of understood it because I, I just didn't have a lot of joy in my life. And I, yeah. it, and you know, you just, you wonder, you think, is this going to be of my existence? Am I ever going to get my joy back? Right. You know? And I hope so before my kids get older, you know? Sure. So was that the, the kind of the point where you finally decided that you needed to, to seek help? Uh, no. Uh, sadly, the first time that I realized that I had PTS, I was get, preparing for my Marines to come back from Fallujah, these reservists that I'd sent over. We'd lost several, and 
20 plus of them wounded. And I knew they were going to come back damaged uh, morally uh, and emotionally. And so at that time, the literature on PTS was just starting to, to kick in. Some of it was good. Some of it wasn't. The Navy and the Marine Corps certainly wasn't prepared for what, what was going to happen. And nor did we know that the war was going to last that long. So I, I found this pamphlet, and I'm trying to prepare a class on this, this first drill weekend back. After these guys came back, they took leave, and then they were, they were getting together for the first time. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to take the whole drill, drill weekend to talk to them about moral injury. And they, we didn't call it that back then, but that's what right. it was. Yep. And uh, as I'm reading this pamphlet and the symptoms of PTS, I'm like, holy cow, man, I've got like all of these. And that's when I kind of knew, you know, secretly inside, you know, being the officer, I didn't want anybody else to know. And I certainly, right. you know, didn't talk to any of my friends, but I remember coming home, my wife's an RN, you know, she worked in a VA hospital for a while. And I came home and I go, you know, I was reading this pamphlet, honey. And I got all these symptoms. And she looks at me like, you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and so I knew at that time that she knew. And, and then of course my kids had already known, but I still thought, okay, I'm good. No big deal. You know, I've never been like a, a, a real heavy drinker, but I was drinking more than normal, you know, just mm -hmm. trying to numb myself at night, go right. to sleep. And um, it wasn't until I had, I had another young Marine uh, who was in prison, whole another story uh, that was from that reserve unit. Uh, he was responsible for uh, stabbing an Iraqi soldier. He, he, he was acquitted of all this down the road, but essentially they, I wasn't there because I was back here. That's the other thing. I felt really guilty because I wanted to go forward with these guys. I did not want to send them into combat without me, but the Marine Corps said, you're not going anywhere because you've got way too much combat time. Yeah. So I was forced to train them, but then hand them over and, and things were happening forward that I didn't have any power to change. Right. One of which was this young Lance Corporal, a guy by the name of Dylan Holmes, young African-American Marine from Indianapolis, good kid. Long story short, he watched his buddies get blown up in front of him. Uh, he was a turret gunner. It freaked him out. They took him off the line, and they ended up putting him in a guard tower with an Iraqi who was signaling a sniper. And uh, turned out into a scuffle. Holmes killed him. He was in prison. So I was in the process of trying to get him out of prison at the time. He was at Camp Pendleton. And the news press was coming to speak to me about it, even though I wasn't sure what had happened. Yeah. And that's really when I had my first kind of episode, I would say, to where I just kind of lost it. And I was driving home, started hyperventil hyperventilating, tunnel vision in the car, had to call a good friend of mine and try to explain to him what was going on. He kind of talked to me on the phone. I got home. By that time, he had called Don, and Don said, okay, we're done with this. You know, we're going to get some help. She called my battalion commander. We collectively all agreed on the phone that I would seek help. And uh, at the time, TRICARE really wasn't set up to help guys with PTSD. So they sent me to a, a, a small mental health clinic in, in Vigo County, Indiana, just a few, few counties south of me. And when I went in there, everybody in the wardroom was in an orange gel jumpsuit with handcuffs on. Uh, there was nobody in there that wasn't that wasn't uh, in there incarcerated for something. And I, wow. I, I thought, man, I'm in the wrong place, you know? So I went up and talked to the nurse and 
said, I think I'm in the wrong place. She said, no, you're in the right place. She said, fill this out. And I sat down with a clipboard and started filling out these questions and questions, you know, right at the top, it's like they wanted my parole officer's name. And I went back up to her again and I said, I'm in the wrong place. She goes, no, you're in the right place. And then it occurred, it occurred to me in middle America, away from a lot of places, there's, you know, away from a, a major VA hospital or uh, just a major hospital, most people, at least back then, are not walking in on their own accord to a mental health clinic. Right. And yep. the preponderance, at least in this county, were people that were court ordered to be there. Right. So just the stigma of me being a major of the Marine Corps combat veteran, having to sit in a circle and toss a ball around with a bunch of prisoners, I'm like, I'm not doing it. So yeah. I left and I refused to get on meds. I refused to t do counseling. And I just came home and told my wife, I'm, I'm not doing it. I'll PT it out of my body. So then I went on this crazy PT. I mean, like I would wake up and just run the piss out of myself trying to make it go away, you know? So that was the first episode. So no, it, it continued on. And then when we finally moved to Quantico, my second episode was what they write about in the Wall Street Journal. And that's, you know, I was doing pretty good. And, and long story short, I heard a guy come talk about PTSD and it brought back a lot of stuff. And then like two weeks later, I'm in the School of Advanced Warfighting. Two weeks after that, I get selected for a command. And they're like, you're going back to Afghanistan and you're leading the 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, which is a great battalion. I mean, very historic battalion in the Marine Corps. And so now I'm even unraveling more with the prospect of, okay, I'm getting ready to lead men into combat. Mm -hmm. Now, Mike used the word panic. I don't know if I would use the word panic in, for me retelling it, but I was anxious. Sure. I was anxious about it because I knew I wasn't right uh, in my emotional state, my mental state. Uh, I knew that my mother-in-law was dying of cancer. I knew that I had all these unresolved issues. And now I'm at that decision point in my life. You know, the Marine Corps has got these leadership traits and principles. And one of them is know yourself and seek self-improvement. And I knew myself and I thought, you know, I could lead this battalion in combat, but I don't know if I could lead it effectively 100%, which is what they deserve, while managing all of these other things. My wife's you know, my, my wife's mother not being with my wife when she dies, mm -hmm. me, me off the spectrum on, on, you know, panic attacks and anxiety and depression and lack of joy. And it just, it was too much, you know? Yeah. So once you did decide that you needed help, what did, uh, and you weren't at the, um, at the mental health institution or whatever it was where they're, you know, your cohort is made up of other prisoners. What, what yeah. did the help actually end up looking like? Well, I had a really good uh, combat casualty nurse by the name of Kim Bradley, who at that time worked for Navy Marine Corps Foundation, or I'm sorry, Navy Marine Corps Relief. And uh, she told me, she said, listen, she goes, right now the Navy is still kind of figuring out how we're going to handle this. And, and uh, she said, my recommendation for you is to go to Fort Belvoir because the army at that time was a little bit more ahead of us. And frankly, this is my own belief. I attribute that to at that time, a lot of sailors minus the seals and special operators had not seen a lot of ground combat. Right. Yeah. So the Navy medical system, just other than corpsmen, the Navy medical system weren't seeing the numbers that the army was seeing. Right. 
And yeah, I think the absolutely. I think the Army realized, hey man, we're we're gonna we're gonna deal with this in a big way. Well, the Marine Corps, we fall under the Navy's medicine protocols. Right. So she took me out of the medical system and put me in the Army system. And the closest one was at Fort Belvoir. Uh, and I went up there and uh, it was good. It was, uh, that was the first time that I felt like, uh, I mean, it was, it was difficult. It was embarrassing. When I say it was good, I mean, all those typical things, you know, it's embarrassing and you're depressed. And, you know, I realize now that I'm probably not going to get command, you know, General Neller told me to think about it, you know, yeah. and he wanted me to seek help. And he also told me, he said, listen, we need to learn about this. Excuse me. The Marine Corps needs to learn about it. And he said, so as I'm, here at Marine Corps University is your one star. You're going to report back to me and you're going to tell me what you're learning because we got to build our own resiliency program within the Marine Corps, which they did. So I was a part of that, not a big nice. part of it, but I was one of the first officers per se that was actively seeking help at Fort Belvoir. And then I just committed myself to kind of learning all I could about it. And, and thankfully, Tracy King, the other guy that's mentioned in the story, he's a major general now, great guy just a super great leader. A lot of guys that weren't even mentioned in the article, I wish I could have mentioned, but, but he was one of them. And uh, he and General Miller worked it out for me to teach at the School of Advanced Warfighting, which really they shouldn't have because I was a student at it, in it at the time. And literally right after I graduated, I turned around and I was the assistant director. Right. They were doing me a favor, but I think at that time they knew I needed something to focus on right uh and to, and to feel valued as a marine corps officer which i think is important you know uh looking back at it now i, I think that's what they were doing and i've tried to do that with my marines because you've got to feel value to the institution and when you when, when you don't feel value to the institution i believe you continue to degrade but in that capacity, I was able to learn a lot while I'm going to these sessions. So I'm like taking a planner's approach now, a military planner's approach. I'm, I'm reading historical examples all the way back to the Civil War, guys dealing with Wow. And I'm thinking, okay, Grant had it, Sherman had it. Okay, they got through it. They're some of America's greatest generals. Chesty Puller had it at Peleliu. I, I think he had what's considered today would be an anxiety attack at Peleliu. Uh, became very lethargic, fell asleep in the middle of the battle, and they actually had to pull his regiment out. Wow. You, know, you don't hear a lot of people talk about these things, but yeah. hearing that and seeing it and studying it, I started realizing, hey, okay, I'm not uh, weak. I'm not, you know, screwed up. There's other combat leaders that have dealt with this. And that gave me some hope, and it also kind of made me feel a little bit better about myself. I know I'm kind of rambling there, but no, you're good. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So you, you end up, you know, they give you that tour and then I, I know, uh, if, if, if I remember correctly, uh, you ended up, uh, working with general Dunford mm -hmm. and, and then you had another tour, um, correct. Yeah. Do I have that backwards? Um, so there, there were several tours, you know, I, I turned down command, General Miller basically said, hey, I want you to think about it because this is a big deal, uh, which was very, very kind and gracious of him because yeah. at that time, he didn't really know me from Adam. And he gave me over Christmas to kind of, he gave me several months to think about it. And, you know, ultimately, it was just looking at my wife and looking at me and I thought, 
I did not want to, one, I just knew I wasn't effective and you know, I've already talked to that and I didn't want to, I didn't want to put any more on her. So then uh, as I'm seeking help and he allows me to be the deputy director of Saul, I just took all that focus and start teaching the students the best I can. Helping them be the best planners they can be based off of my experience as a student, although I did do planning in a previous billet, so I kind of felt like I, I had that. And that two years was good for me to kind of regroup, and it gave me a pause to focus on my spiritual health, my mental health, my emotional health, my physical health, um, and kind of, you know, just think about everything that had transpired. Uh, at the end of that, General Miller told me, hey, if you want to put in for a command again, you can. And I did. Now, I did not get a, a combat command. Uh, right. and, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, I don't, <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. I think I could have gone back into combat, no problem at that time. But at that time, they, they gave me pretty good billet, pretty good command billets, instructor battalion. It's the basic school where we train all of our officers. And I think probably looking back, the board looked at it and said, hey, you know, Randy, you know, really struggled with this. So we shouldn't put him in a combat situation. I don't know what the discussions were. I, I felt like I could have gone back at that time, two years past that I felt I would have been good, but who knows. So I did that command for uh, two years. And then at the conclusion of that command, uh, General Dunford, he didn't ask me to come forward. General Dunford was uh, a company commander when I was a young force recon enlisted Marine. That's right. We had served together. So, yeah, so we had, we had, you know, previous history and I really respected him a lot. And I knew that he had gotten selected to take over ISAF. So I emailed him and I told him, I said, I'd like to go forward if, if you're willing to take me. And, uh, you know, to his credit, again, very gracious. He, he took me on as his, his, his staff as one of his planners. And uh, that was good for me because it gave me a chance to go back to Afghanistan. It was a combat tour, but I'm, I'm in a planning realm now. So right. not like what I'd done before. But, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of plans that are focused on combat actions in Afghanistan and also withdrawal and trying to get the ANA running and getting all of our stuff out of the country. And that was very therapeutic for me. Uh, it was good to go back. Uh, and I think I needed to do that just to uh, not just heal in a way, but for me, and maybe it's a pride thing, but just to feel like, okay, I'm value added. I'm, I'm back here now. I'm planning, I'm helping others, and I'm using all my experiences, both good and bad, to try to make this better. Uh, so yeah, so I went back, did a planner tour from him. It was at that time I got selected for top level school. Uh, and I went to uh, Fort Leavenworth <clears throat> where I was a student for one year and I got uh, my strategic studies degree. And then the following year I taught at the Army's equivalent to Saul, which is the School of Advanced Military Studies uh, at Fort Leavenworth for a year. Wow. And then after that, Okinawa, OPSO for 3MF. And then after that, selected for Colonel Command, where I went to Paris Island. Then after Paris Island, down to Florida. <laughs> gotcha. Right on. Well, yeah, you, you seem like you've had quite the successful tour after uh, going out and, and seeking help for, for the challenges that you're experiencing. So uh, congratulations on that, even if it may not have been the the combat command that you, had, I'm sure, always aspired to. But you're still commanding uh, Marines in, you know, 
uh, and making a difference. And then that that time back in Afghanistan working for General Dunford, um, that the article mentions that there was actually a nonprofit that was doing that with other uh, veterans who had had, um, you know, challenging experiences in in those hills or in those valleys, and they were bringing them back there to experience the the kind of the geography again and how that actually helped them to heal like like it did you. Uh, so yeah. that's pretty powerful, pretty powerful stuff there. Um, now, uh, how long ago, uh, again, another potentially sensitive topic here, uh, your, your good friend, Bret Hart. Um, and I know there, there's a story here. Um, how long mm -hmm. ago did he end up taking his life and how did that affect you? Yeah. Uh... So Brett, uh, kind of the background on him is I met him in college. Uh, he was from Southern Indiana. He went to Indiana University. When I met him at the time, I was a platoon sergeant in that reserve unit I was telling you about. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a military police officer reservist drilling out of Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, we just hit it off. Great guy. Uh, Brett's one of the purest souls of any man I've ever met. Uh, and this seems hard to believe, but I've never seen him do or say anything wrong I've, wow. never, I've never heard him talk ill of somebody uh very very uh strong faith in god very spiritual man uh his dad was a preacher a brilliant guy engineer just super super smart guy long story short uh don introduced him to his wife on a blind date at a marine corps ball so we were family nice. friends and uh i talked bread into putting in an officer package uh and he, he did and got commissioned shortly after i did um uh, and showed up to tbs he went the aviation route was a phenomenal pilot uh flew medevacs in the war uh, that i knew later i didn't know at that time how much it had affected him because uh, it's tough to fly a helicopter uh, and get guys out of the city you know in places like Fallujah and ramadi and sure. just tough so I know he lost guys on medevac flights and, and uh, long story short, Brett and I had been friends for a very long time. Him and another good friend of mine that went to Purdue University from Indiana got my name of Kirk Mullins. We were all three very close. And uh, uh, so Brett, I, I kind of lost contact with him other than just like little Facebook messages. And sure. you know, like all of us, you let life consume you. And then we're all fighting our own battles and uh i just wasn't as good of a friend to him as he was to me in terms of keeping in touch and uh he had sent me a message saying hey i'm gonna retire uh he was preparing to retire and he wanted me and kurt to come out well we decided to surprise him and not tell him we were coming uh, which i now looking back at it i really wish i would have let him know i was coming sure and he was the XO of an experimental helicopter squadron out of Yuma. He was a V-22 pilot. He had transitioned over from frogs. And, uh, I, you know, John, I don't know what he was dealing with, but he was dealing with something pretty heavy. And uh, he flew his last flight in an Osprey. And, you know, that night went home and, and woke up the next morning, told his wife he was going in for a swim in the morning. He was a phenomenal swimmer. And uh, he took his life. And, and he did that literally like three days before his retirement. Wow. 
and uh, lose you there. Nine eleven. Uh, him and another good friend of mine, another pilot. Uh, so we had gone through a lot together, and uh, and it, it it really really just took the air out of me. And sure. it was, you know, I was a Paris Island at the time, and I'd not seen a therapist in many years. And uh, so I, I I decided at that time, with a little bit of prodding from my wife, you know, she was like, it might be a good time for you to go back and talk to somebody because yeah. grief. You know, when you're dealing with PTSD, and you know this, when you're, when you, when you think that you're kind of over something, and then something like that comes along, and it's a good friend, pretty much like a brother, uh, grief gets a hold of you. And you know, bottom line is, I had to go back in and and you know, kind of reestablish myself with a uh, with a therapist, and uh, she was really good, nice lady. Nice. And at the end of the day, you know, she said, Randy, I, I just think, you know, you're grieving. She said, I don't, I don't think this is the, the, the typical stuff that you had in the past with PTSD. She said, I think this guy and you were really close. And she said, I think you feel bad because you didn't maintain contact with him, which is normal. Right. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so there's a lot of grief with that. So that was really hard loss for me. Uh, I, I bet. Uh, yeah, I can, I can only imagine. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm again at a loss for words. As as far as your your treatment, your you know, getting some counseling with some psychologists. Um, I don't know uh, if the the article didn't mention this, but what we do with Veterans Path is you know we teach mindfulness and meditation to to vets, and you and I have discussed this in the past. Ha, have you ever tried uh, mindfulness and meditation for for what it is that you're uh, challenge with right now the, the both the PTS and the the grieving uh, and the loss of Brett. Yeah, I have. Uh, at the time, you know, when I kind of started down this path, I was telling you that kind of learning about, you know, I'm I'm a military. So, you know, I'm, I'm big at, at uh, th through kind of my studies of kind of navigating going forward. I, you know, I, I, I never just go to one weapon to, to fight anything. You know, I'm, I take a combined arms approach. So, <laughs> so uh, years ago, the closest thing to mindfulness back then that I had done uh, was I had a team leader, a great guy named Stan Roberts, who I uh, got the whole platoon hooked on a form of martial arts, which is called Shoin Ru. And uh, I wasn't really strong in it, but part of, part of that was Tai Chi. And as you know, part of Tai Chi has a lot of mindfulness in it. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a lot about, you know, just looking at those aspects of your human condition, assessing them for what they are, you know, uh, meditating and concentrating on what is and what's not, and kind of putting things into a certain context. Uh, with what's happening just at the, at the time that you're going through it or memories of things that have happened in the past while you're meditating and you're kind of thinking about thinking, if that makes sense, that's the best yep. way that I, I can yeah. describe it. So I, I, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of took my path as, you know, my, my spirituality is very important to me. You know, I have a very strong 
pushing on people, but it's a big part of who I am. So there's an aspect of that meditation that's spiritual for me. And then there's also an aspect of that meditation that is me just really thinking through uh, kind of my condition and what's affected my condition in the past and, and how that's affecting it in the present. And I guess, and I'm sure you've read the book uh, by uh, Frankel. Yeah, Body Keeps the Score. Uh, no, no, the other one that's uh, the uh, the former Holocaust victim. Oh, no, 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 no sorry. Yeah. Um, Man's Search for Meaning. Yes, 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 that's right. And, and a lot of what he was doing in the, in, the, in the Nazi prisoner of war camp was essentially mindfulness, if you really read his book, because he was talking about how he decided to think about what was happening to him, and then he was propelling himself into a future that he desired. And because of his ability to do that, and I'm not saying that it's a perfect parallel to mindfulness, but it's an aspect of it, I believe, sure. he survived where others died. You know, others that just were so taken over by, <clears throat> by grief and fear, he was able to separate himself out and to dwell and think about his condition at the time and, then, and, and give him some hope for the future, you know? And really ask himself of why am I thinking this? And, and, and you know, so, so that's an aspect of it. And I, I think the other guy uh, that was really important and kind of helped me through this, and, and you went to, did you go to Naval Academy? I did, so, yes. So you're familiar with the Stockdale <clears throat> leadership, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, in Admiral Stockdale, you know, he, he uh, in the truest sense, was a Stoic. And Stoicism, I believe, has a lot of mindfulness in it. In that, you know, here's Stockdale in a prisoner of war camp in Hanoi and uh, has every right to just be angry about his condition and what the Vietnamese prison guards are doing to him. But he chose to focus on it in a different way. Now right. he uses more of the classical stoicist kind of approach to it. So I kind of took bits and pieces of all that, if it makes sense. And still to this day, I still look, look back at those things. Like, you know, it, it's funny that we're having this podcast now because I'm literally on the farm <laughs> where my PTSD started. Yeah, that's pretty and, wild. And I'm completely isolated because it's COVID-19. Right. So I'm on this acreage with a mess, just a shit pile of stuff my dad left here where I could look at it. And to be honest with you, some days I do, I get real angry. Yeah. You know, but instead what I'm trying to do is think, okay, well, what's a positive about this? Mm -hmm. Cause there are some positives. I mean, I love working with my hands. I love repairing stuff. I mean, I've gotten two tractors to run since I've been here and I'm not nice. a, and I'm not a diesel mechanic. You know? <laughs> Thank goodness for, for uh, YouTube. Right. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm cleaning up somebody else's garbage and I won't get deep on my dad with this, but he lived a very, you know, turbulent life and made a lot of messes that I had to clean up over my, my life. And here I am again, even in his death dealing with it. And I, I could look at it one way and just be really pissed and mad and angry, but that's not helping me. Right. 
you know, now I'm going to be honest with your viewers. There's days I wake up and I'm pissed and angry and I'm cursing them. Sure. You know, because I'm, I'm taking care of my mom, uh, which he couldn't do effectively. And I'm doing it while I'm cleaning up his mess. And it just feels to me, I look at it and it's like this imperfect, horrible situation. I'm away from my family. feels like a deployment. You know, I'm in this house by myself when my PTSD started. I'm dealing with all my dad's baggage. But then when you go back to thinking about mindfulness, thinking about stoicism, thinking about critical thinking, you start using those tools. And I'm like, okay, what is it today that I'm going to do that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repair and make better? And I think there's a chemical aspect. I'm not a doctor. But when you do things that you used to enjoy doing, whether it's physical work, creativity, uh, uh, inquisitiveness, uh, taking time to pause and look at something and just, you know, realize it for what it is. Like this morning I woke up and, and there's a Baltimore Oriole on some tree. I'm in the third deck here. First one I've seen this spring in Indiana and spring comes late in Indiana. So we're just now blooming. Right. Yeah. And, and there is some beauty out here and, yeah. and it is beautiful, you know, and that redbud tree that I'm looking at this morning has been blooming like that ever since, you know, the last 20 years, despite nice. how I'm feeling. Sure. You know, so I think that's kind of what Frankel and other Stockdale did in those depths of darkness was look for beauty, look for any type of small little speck of joy they could get, hang on to it, and then try to do something in their own psyche and their own emotional spirit to make them feel better. And they're in control of that decision. You know, you're yeah. in control of that decision. So that's kind of what, in a real rough grunt-like way, it means to me, if that makes nice. sense. Yeah, it does, yeah, it totally does. Uh, and I love the I love the the last bit there with the tree and the blooming uh, in the spring there. I mean, paying attention to that, and, you know, allowing some positivity into your life, even in the midst of everything else that you're going through. Right. Both both uh, with your personal family life and the fact that you're geographically separated from your family and isolated because of uh, COVID-19. Um, so yeah, that's important that you have that. And I think that's a huge piece of mindfulness is being aware of the here and now, the present and, and paying attention to little details that can be positive in your life. So yeah, yeah that, that's great. So as far as uh, what you're doing now, it seems as though you are an advocate for others seeking mental health support. Um, what, what are you actually doing to, to promote others doing so? Yeah, well, a big a big part of it, frankly, was that story. Uh, and in truth and advertising here, uh, I did not want to do that story. <laughs> yeah. The uh, yeah. you know the public affairs office in the Marine Corps had asked me if I would talk to Mike about you know kind of my story. Uh, we are back. Yeah. So the public affairs guy. Uh, had spoken to you about you doing your story with Mike. Yeah. So, uh, so after Brett had taken his life, you know, that's, I talked to Don, I'm like, listen, you know, if, if Brett Hart can take his life, uh, then anybody can. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The uh, nobody is impervious. Right. Yeah. Um, we have uh, a SEAL commander that ended up. Are you, are you still there, Randy? Yeah, okay. I think so. I yeah. don't know why the internet's kind of spotty, so we'll just yeah. check it. But yeah, all good. Um, yeah. So for our listeners, there's a couple of drop drops there, but uh, I think we've got it under control. We got it uh, paused during the breaks, and uh, and we got it running again during uh, when we got Randy back on the net here. But yeah, we had uh, you know a SEAL commander um, take his own life uh, in in theater, um, and you know, nobody is, a, is above this, right? I mean, everybody is vulnerable to uh, mental health challenges that, that we, we all, we're all human. So if, if you think you're above it, um, I can tell you that you're most likely not. And, um, and then if you think that you are having challenges, then you are definitely not alone in that. Um, not so much speaking directly to you, Randy, but just for our listeners, and then, uh, yeah, I'll start to wrap it up here. Um, Dawn runs a nonprofit now too. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I know that at some point, Veterans Path is, is supposed to talk with, uh, with that nonprofit. I'm forgetting the name right now. Yeah, Vantage Point. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I know it's the same, same mm-hmm. letters, VP, Vantage Point. <laughs> uh, can you speak about that and what the, uh, what the mission there is? Sure, yeah. Uh, similar to yours, you know, it's, it's a uh, nonprofit. Uh, it was originally established uh, in kind of the southeastern uh, seaboard there, you know, North Carolina, Georgia, South Carolina, and then upstate South Carolina and Greenville. Uh, but it's branching out, uh, and it's basically modeled around uh, taking veterans uh, that are in transition, leaving the service, any service, doesn't matter, uh, that are dealing with those typical transition issues and through donors uh, providing for them a course that runs a couple weeks a year, but then you're teamed up with a mentor who has kind of kind of been there and struggled with the same things. A lot of these guys are, you know, Vietnam veterans uh, that went on to have very successful lives and start businesses of their own. And it's just kind of a, you know, kind of a support network uh, for a year. Uh, for that particular veteran, and, and she can do a much better job than I can talking about it, but uh, she got involved with them uh, through Kim Bradley, who was the combat casualty nurse that dealt with me, and we've become family friends over the years, and because Don was an RN, and Kim's an RN, and, and uh, everything that they've done, I mean, they've been helping veterans even before they were with these organizations. Uh, she's really passionate about it. She's very good at it. So she's a case manager. She, she essentially is kind of that, uh, that in between helping with VA hospitals, helping with appointments, colleges, job placement, all of that. Uh, and, and it's a really, really good organization uh, that I could see probably growing in the future. Uh, they've got a really good success rate. Uh, the COVID thing, like like everybody, I'm sure you guys are dealing with it. It's kind of put stuff yeah, on hold. Sure. But I, but it, in some aspects, again, this is kind of that that mindfulness. There's a positive, many positives that come out of that. Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, and I think one of them is it's just they're going to have a much better virtual presence 
kind of face to face like what you and I are doing. Right. And frankly, I think a lot of veterans need that uh, in a more timely fashion than just getting together the old fashioned way. So I think other organizations are probably going to use that to great effect in the future. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, like you mentioned, the, the veterans, it, it's, I think, critical that we get the, the virtual networks set up um, because of the geographic dispersion number of veterans. And then on top of that, uh, you can, uh, in some ways, attend virtual meetings um, incognito, and they may be more likely to uh, seek help if they can do that. Uh, it's almost like yeah. uh, almost like an AA model, but you're not actually going in there showing your face. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, um, I you know I didn't even ask when you mentioned Dawn as an RN. Is she working as an RN right now during this COVID nineteen? She's not. No, yeah. she's she's pretty much done the case management thing. She's done okay. all kinds of nursing. Like she's been a floor nurse, VA nurse. Uh, she's been a post surge nurse and school nurse. So this is just one aspect. This is the one she's most passionate about because okay. it's with veterans, and yeah. she knows how, she knows how much it's helped our family. Sure. Uh, sure. But no, she's she's not. Luckily, right now, and uh, well. Still, even even that said, I mean, uh, we are so very thankful for our healthcare workers in this time. Uh, oh yeah, you know, that's that's the new front line right now. So it is uh, very yeah. very thankful for Dawn and uh, you know all the RNs, the the PAs, the nurse practitioners, and the physicians out there, and then all the first responders that are out there as well doing what they do during this time. So Randy, uh, coming up, uh, kind of on the the closing of our, our of our show, what have we not spoken about that you would like our listeners to hear about? Well, I think probably the biggest uh, thing, and this is what I tell everybody, you know, uh, tell young Marines and and uh, and friends of mine that are, are dealing with post traumatic stress. Shift this off here real quick. Sure. But uh, what what I would want the listeners to know. Uh, first and foremost is if you're dealing with any type of post-traumatic stress, depression, anxiety, uh, panic, loss of joy, and you feel like you're in this dark hole uh, and you're looking up and you can't see any light, there are many, many other men and women who are right there with you. Uh, and there's many others that have been there and have made it out. So I think one of the things that I would tell any veteran uh, from any age group, time period, conflict, is uh, there's strength in knowing that others, regardless of their rank, regardless of their education, their social class, it doesn't matter, we're all human, and that they've been there. Uh, so don't think you're an isolated incident and that you're more screwed up than somebody else because you're not. The second thing, second big point is that I can tell anybody with 100% assurance that I am way stronger now uh, emotionally, mentally, maybe not physically because I'm getting up in age now. <laughs> But uh, spiritually, way stronger now, having gone through 
and made it out of that tunnel into the light than I ever was having not had PTSD before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, or as mentioned in the article for you anyway, uh, the post-traumatic growth. Yeah. Um, and and uh, you know that one of the books um, that I read, the the obstacle is the way. That that is something that does help you to in fact become yeah. a, a better person, more understanding, more empathetic. Uh, and more in touch with who you are. So uh, yeah. um, I don't wish the obstacle on anyone, yeah. but I certainly do uh, appreciate the growth that you get from going through that. So, well, um, here's one, here's one thing that. I here's one thing I would add to that, John. And this is kind of on the spiritual side, though. You know, it's I can remember before PTS, almost praying uh, to be a better father, be a better leader, better be a, be a better Marine Corps officer. And in my opinion. Uh, I don't think uh, God just says, okay, Shazam. Right, right. Makes you all those. Instead, I believe things are placed in front of us for whatever reason that through those trials, you get to, to where you wanted to be as that person. Right. And again, that's kind of on the mindfulness thing, you know. I mean, if you can look at this, it's like, yeah, this is tough and it's it's daunting and it's, I'm not like I used to be, but through this, and most people uh, that gain wisdom, that gain experience, that gain leadership qualities, they get that going through obstacles. Absolutely. And, and that's what this is. It's an obstacle and yeah. it, you can overcome it and you can make it through it. And in the end, you'll be much wiser. You'll be much stronger. You'll, and, and you know, the empathy thing is important and I would be at a loss if I didn't say this uh, and I'm ashamed to say this, but before having PTS, I used to look at others who struggled with things as being weak. Yeah. You know, I, I'm talking people that struggle with weight or people that struggle with some kind of addiction or people that struggle with whatever it is. And I can remember there was a time in my life where I thought, well, I'm a Marine, you know, I've overcome this, you know, they're weak, I'm not. And having gone through this, I think that's one of the things that God's enabled me to do is to look at it now and say, you know what, uh, at the end of the day, everybody struggles with something. Right. Okay? And if you haven't, be assured you will. You will. <laughs> there yeah. will be something in your life that's going to be very difficult at some point. And uh, it's how you handle that and how you get through it. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's important to know that you can come out of this way stronger than you were before. Yeah. And, and, with, and with a greater purpose too. For sure. Yeah. Great, great final wrap up there, Randy. And thank you yeah. for leaving that with our listeners. If, uh, if people wanted to reach out to you to learn more about you or to kind of pick your brain, what's the best way for them to contact you? Uh, I'm not too good on LinkedIn anymore, as you, you probably know, uh, yep. but I, I'm finishing up my teaching right now. I'm more than happy uh, to share my email address with them. Uh, I'm on Facebook. They can friend me on Facebook. You can share my phone number with them. Uh, I've had literally over a thousand people since that article came out. Oh, I bet. Well, uh, I, the, the article's phenomenal and it's a, it's a heck of a story and I'm a, honored and humbled to have had you uh, take me on as a uh, to come on as a guest uh, after that article. So thanks for 
uh, replying to my <laughs> my uh, emails and uh, phone calls. So thank you very much, Randy. It's uh, it's been a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your story. It uh, it literally took me through the entire spectrum of emotions just here interviewing you. Uh, so I'm exhausted, <laughs> but uh, like I said, that was just a, a little taste of of everything that you've been through. So thank you for sharing that, uh, and thank you for what you're doing for for our veterans now and uh, and our Marines now, since you're still active. Uh, and uh, and good luck with everything that you've got down the line. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Enjoyed uh, being on, and feel free to give me a call down the road if you need something else. More Will do. Thanks, Randy. And, and until we do speak again, stay safe and stay healthy. Okay. For our listeners and viewers, thank you again for listening to or watching our show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We too are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button here on the podcast or here on YouTube. Leave us a comment, a review, a like, and again, share it with anyone you feel needs to hear our message. And remember, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority improving and saving lives. 